Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is episode 211. We're recording this live on July 1st, 2021, and this is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by Mr. Blake Arnstorff. Hello, everybody, and thank you for the bongo drums intro. That was sick. Man, there was there was a lot going on. I had to like turn everything off. Uh, and I forgot to record, and there was a lot. So sorry about the drums, guys. Uh, anyway, welcome to the show. Um, just a quick programming note: we do have our latest deep dive that is live now on algorithms and uh, whether or not it can predict your brain preferences. That's a lot of fun. Those deep dives are awesome to go. They're great companion pieces to the podcast, and we'll have one for this episode as well. Um, so be sure to check out our website for that. Um, Human Factors Cast Digital Media Lab. That's open for business. We got uh, quite a few members. Uh, welcome to our newest member, Yvette. Um, so uh, we have a couple spots left, and there's some really interesting things going on in the lab that we're not quite ready to share. But if that at all interests you, if you want to get involved in any way, uh, we do have a couple spots open. So please reach out to us. Uh, let us know kind of what you're interested in and we can try to find our uh the best way that you can help us out um and help you out too uh, it's all a what symbiotic relationship we we want to make sure that uh, the lab is a fun place to be um anyway uh, i think that's it we know what you're here for you're here for human factors news right we <laughs> <laughs> What a, what a show. We stopped for one week, and uh, I forget how to press buttons. Uh, yeah, this is the part of the show all about human factors. News, this is where we talk about everything related to the field of human factors. This could be anything. We got some medical in there. We got some uh, psychology in there. As long as it relates to the field of human factors, it is fair game for us to sit here and chat about on the show. Blake, what do we have this week? All right, so up first, or up only this week, <laughs> when rudeness becomes a matter of life and death. So how rudeness narrows your mindset and can lead to medical mistakes. So have you ever been interrupted by a colleague in a meeting and found yourself replaying that event in your head all day, even after you left work? Probably. Minor rude events like this happen all the time, and you may be surprised by the magnitude of of the effects they have on our decision-making and our daily functioning. In fact, recent research suggests that in certain situations, incidental rudeness like this can actually be deadly. So in research forthcoming in the Journal of Applied Psychology, Smith Management, management Professor Folk and colleagues looked at how experiencing rudeness amplifies the anchoring bias. The anchoring bias can happen in a lot of different situations, but it's very common in medical diagnosis and negotiations. So if you go to a doctor and say, I think I'm having a heart attack, that can become an anchor for the doctor to focus on trying to fix that diagnosis or understand that diagnosis, even if you're just experiencing something like indigestion. Across four studies, researchers found that both witnessed and directly experienced rudeness seemed to have a similar anchoring effect across situations. And basically what they were observing is a narrowing effect. So rudeness narrowing a person's perspective that narrowed the perspective that they couldn't see outside of that particular situation, leave, leaving them susceptible to dangerous situations in this case for decision making. So Nick, this is really an intersection of a lot of different psychological principles, but the biggest thing being that rudeness can have a severe effect depending on context. Now, is this something you've ever thought about before? Um, kind of passively. 
Uh, I have thought... So let me just back up and talk about like the anchoring bias. So I've thought about this uh, with medical diagnoses. So whenever I go into the doctor, I only describe symptoms. I don't describe what I think it is based on what I've WebMD'd before I go um, <laughs> because I don't want to anchor them and I, I want their expert opinion. That's why I'm there. I don't, I, I actively try to avoid that. Um, but whether or not, you know, rudeness affects that anchoring, I had never thought about before. And, uh, you know, we were talking about this before the show. This is one of those things. It's like, um, I think this comes out of a business school, but this is like psychology research. And it was just interesting to see how human factors is kind of pervasive across, uh, multiple disciplines. But, um, I, I do want to back up here. Uh, let's, let's talk about, what we mean when we say rudeness and what we mean when we are talking about the anchoring bias, right? So rudeness, that's kind of this display of disrespect, um, kind of ignoring social norms um, or some common etiquette that you might experience that uh, goes against cultural expectations and uh, basically kind of pushes boundaries of these um, interactions of accepted behavior, right? So that's that's what's going on when we define rudeness. Uh, so something that's not culturally acceptable, uh, I guess, like <laughs> I don't know, calling somebody a name that's not kind. Uh, you can you can imagine what that is. But um, and then you pair that with anchoring bias. And let's talk about anchoring bias really quick. So this is a cognitive bias that allows us or, or um, causes us to rely too heavily on that first piece of information that we receive about something. Uh, the the example that you gave about heart attack, right? That's a example of anchoring in a medical context. Um, someone comes in, they say, I, I think I'm having a heart attack. And so the doctor then uh, may get fixated on that um, idea of this patient having a heart attack. And they then might be suffering from another type of bias, confirmation bias, uh, you know, uh, to basically make sure that that is the correct diagnosis. Um, and so they're looking for things that fit that. So they're, they're looking for anchoring and then they're um, kind of trying to fit everything to that. And then let's let's talk about the other example. You said the Mississippi River example, right? 500 miles. You're anchoring them to that 500 miles when in reality it might be much bigger. It might be much smaller. Um, and that that anchor becomes an influence uh, for how long you feel like that river actually is. Right. So so there's a couple things going on here. Um, and then kind of the the that's what I'm looking for. The confluence of the two is what we're talking about in this paper. Right. Um, I'm going to pass it back over to you, Blake. Have you ever thought of this and do you use any or have you thought about anchoring in the medical context before? So I've definitely thought about anchoring because that's something you read in like any early you know, Kahneman Tversky paper where they're really focused on decision making. And I did have a professor early on who was very interested in, you know, medical errors and what it had to do with, you know, patient decision making along with uh, doctor decision making in the operating room. So I've heard of the idea, but I guess I had never really thought about it in a real world context, um, like outside of an operating room, like a me as a patient coming into a doctor's office and being able to immediately bias somebody by, you know, my assumption that I'm having a heart attack or whatever, being able to like kind of color their view of whatever is going on with me, which to some degree you have to rely on. And I think in the medical world, it actually makes sense that it's so prolific because if you think about kind of how in how healthcare ends up really working, 
typical doctors, like if you're going to it, you know, a typical big box uh, doctor's office, right? They only have so much time they can actually spend with patients. So they've got to be in and out and making certain decisions as fast as they can. So if you hear like, oh, I think this is wrong with me, trying to investigate that is a likely way to go based on like time and decision making you have to make to be able to get somebody either to more help if they need it or out of the doctor's office and on their way. So it, I think it's, it's funny that this is definitely a dangerous consequence in the medical field, but I think it's a pretty t- intuitive one that when you present a piece of information to someone, they can tend to latch onto that or let that color their judgments as they move forward. Yeah, I want to talk about briefly um, two things. Well, one, the Mississippi River, just for anyone listening who doesn't know how long it is, I just I Googled this for everyone's uh, convenience, I guess. It's 2,318 miles. So you can see where that 500 mile as an anchor is actually really impacting how long you think it is. Uh, because if you think 500 miles, you might think, oh, it's the you know length of uh, the five between Southern California and Northern California. That's that's my frame of reference, right? Um, and so, uh, or, or San Diego in the Bay Area, right? That's 500 miles. Anyway, so that's like my anchor. And I'm like, oh yeah, that seems reasonable. It goes up the country. You know? Anyway, you can see how that anchors uh, your, your frame of thought when you think about the river as a whole, when it, actuality it's like four times that and so you might be thinking oh is it actually shorter than that I'm, i don't know um so i do want to i do want to talk about anchoring bias and why it actually happens right so um there's some debate as to why it happens but it's deeply rooted in sort of human psychology and cognition um and uh some of the more recent evidence uh, suggests that it happens kind of depending on where the anchoring information comes from so we can become anchored to all different types of information or values of pieces of information um, whether we come up them whether we come up with them ourselves or uh, are provided with them by others um, but basically we react to them for different reasons and so um, you know if we come up with something ourselves that's almost borderline uh, confirmation bias but then when it comes from others, it's more of that anchoring bias. Um, so again, we kind of don't know exactly why it happens, but we do know it happens, and it has different sources there. Um, and I'm sure, like most things in psychology, there's a large interaction effect there. Because if you yeah. if you think about that, there you could like you, maybe you just trust source of in- information more, so you'll always believe or anchor yourself in that just because of you know your prior experience or you know you you believe in let's say medical science or something like that. Um, so it, I think there's probably a little bit of confirmation bias that leads you to anchors that you be- you actually believe in um, or that you focus on, or if it's data oriented, right? Like sometimes when you put right. statistics or numbers to things, people are more likely to believe it anyway. Um, without doing any extra research, which is kind of, again, in that same line of the Kahneman and Tversky work of providing people with data and then seeing how it affects their decision making, which is still mind bottling that that's that like science from the psychology science from like the 80s still like it colors what we do today in terms of psychology research. Yeah. Um, so we've talked a lot about kind of the concepts behind it. Blake, do you want to break down uh, how they kind of tested this theory out? 
Yeah, so to break down how they were seeing this and kind of replicate it in the lab, uh, what they did is they the researchers ran actually a medical simulation with anesthesiology students, uh, and the residents had to diagnose and treat a, a patient, but right before they go into the simulation where they're going to treat this patient, they're given an anchoring piece of information about the patient's condition or a suggestion about what they may experience. Uh, so the suggestion was typically incorrect, and it served as the the quote unquote anchor for the study. Uh, and throughout the exercise, the simulator um, during like the person who was facilitating this provided feedback that the amblin was not to, not the suggested diagnosis, but instead something else. So you had this conflict between what a resident was told before they went in to actually diagnose a patient, and then your patient or your confederate in this case, um, kind of giving information that was contrary to that if you will um and then in some of the, some of these iterations of course to do a little bit of um kind of like between subject study here uh they the researchers had one doctor enter the room and act rudely toward another doctor in front of residents to see how that would actually color the situation as well so we got two things going on we have an instance of an anchoring effect from an outside party but then we have the introduction of rudeness to see how that kind of affects people's overall um, interaction with patients. Right. And the answer to the question, does rudeness impact the way that patients are treated uh, because of this anchoring effect is yes, is what this, this study is suggesting, right? Yeah. Um, so basically they're saying uh, that rudeness, you know, experiencing this rude doctor um, would make you uh, more likely to anchor because it kind of narrows your perspective um, and the researchers explored these two tasks, right, that have been showed to expand your perspective, um, which were perspective taking and information elaboration. So, you know, they, they were looking at um, those two things and found that the rudeness actually makes you more likely to anchor. Um, this really makes me want to ask my doctor <laughs> questions about how their day's been before we get started. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Yeah, so this is this is uh, news you can use, if you will, right? <laughs> Take it, it is. to your doctor's office and ask them, "Hey, how's your day going?" Um, be polite, and uh, that's that's why you should always be polite to your healthcare professionals. Um, you know, I, th I think that's a great one there, Blake. Um, yeah, I I don't know. Um, so the answer is yes, it does impact it. I don't know. Do we want to get into some of these other insights here, Blake? So it, just to like really show the the antithesis or the thesis of what really happened here. So the the big overall takeaway is like Nick said, there is a correlation between these two actions, kind of the having the rudeness and the anchor kind of narrowing your focus. Uh, so what the researchers really have found is they were when experiencing rudeness prior to the simulation starting, uh, the particular resident would then keep treating the wrong thing, even though the person in the simulation or the confederate was giving them plenty of markers to say, like, actually, it's something else. It, it has nothing to do with that, like, anchoring effect that you, you had before you came in and potentially this, like, effect of narrowing your perception. Uh, so it, that's that's really interesting. They're able to, like, get both to work together and then show in, a, in basically a, a pretty narrow study this can actually happen in a medical context and have consequence. Um, so it's, it's just a, it's a strange thing to see this uh, kind of play out across studies because this, this paper is starting to make a lot more sense based on where this uh, school is, because they mentioned this happens in negotiation technique as well. So seeing like a negative effect and then 
also seeing how like anchoring so- based on somebody's like suggestion or something like that could happen in the business world and now we're seeing it replicated in a kind of a more serious context or a more deadly context in some cases yeah i i, I do want to talk you kind of um opened up the pandora's box here but i do want to talk a little bit about real world applications of anchoring um i mean like salary negotiation right that's something that you can use to anchor yeah. uh and depending on who says a number first that anchors the other party to the expectations so um you know you could you could say something incredibly high and that anchors them to where, you know where you are it might not get you the job but it will let you know what uh, or let them know what you're thinking. And so they'll start to think about what around that range is appropriate. Um, likewise, you could let them set the anchor first and it might be an, a really big low ball. Um, and, you know, it, it it's like, well, do I take it because it's, it's a job and I need money. Like it's yeah. so use, use anchoring in your everyday life, right? When you go to negotiate a uh, used car sale, right? That's another uh, instance where they anchor it the the sticker on the window is an anchor in itself uh where it says you know five thousand dollars or whatever then you know that might be much higher than they're willing to part with it but they put that anchor there so that way you can um determine whether or not that is a appropriate price so think about anchoring in your everyday life um We'll talk about some applications of anchoring in, in just a minute. But um, I do want to mention that this uh, anchoring effect with the rudeness, this was actually replicated across several different tasks. Um, I, you mentioned negotiations, but uh, general knowledge tasks as well. Um, and all, throughout all these different studies, the results were consistent, uh, where rudeness makes it more likely that a person will get anchored the first suggestion they hear so if you compare (laughs) if you combine that with the other applications that i just said be rude (laughs) to to your prospective employers and they'll be more likely to anchor themselves to your (laughs) your expected salary don't do that Uh, that's really bad Um, (laughs) it won't work like you think it will yeah and and same thing like it's it's this weird um it's this weird thing right where if you um if you need something, you can't be rude. Yet, if they are experiencing rudeness from an outside source that is not you, they might still be more receptive to your anchor. It's all very fascinating, and I'm sure somebody will figure out a way to optimize this and take advantage of it. But um, you know, that's that's for another time. <laughs> um, I don't know. Is there anything else you want to talk about here, Blake? Before we get into some of these other uh, application areas. No, I mean the the biggest parts from here because I think I think you've done a good job helping it make it clear like there's different types of anchoring that exist in your daily life whether we're kind of cognizant of it or paying attention to it. Um, but something that did come up throughout the paper is like how do you perf- what do we do in situations like this where anchoring and then come like uh, in combination with rudeness can have really you know drastic effects like in the medical world or even in your own you know, negotiations for job stuff. Uh, And one big thing that they continue to bring up was this capability to try and do perspective taking. So actually trying to put yourself in the shoes of the person that's talking to you um, and then really kind of think from their perspective to help you elaborate your worldview a little bit more. Um, And I don't know if uh, it looks like the researchers were actually able to find that both behaviors could help to counteract 
or counteract the effect of rudeness and anchoring by doing these kind of perspective taking tasks or adding these in, uh, which is really interesting. And it probably takes a lot of self-awareness to be able to put yourself through those kind of things in daily life to come out of anchoring effects or like a rude experience impacting how you interact with other people. Um, but it's, it's cool to see that it, there's actual mitigation strategies in the research as well. Yeah. I want to talk about just a couple more examples in the real world, right? Um, you have judge, uh, like in, in the courtroom, uh, you have these examples where, um, when convictions are handed out, lawyers are going to try very hard to make sure to get that meeting directly after a lunch break because they're far more likely to give lesser sentences, um, or allow people to go on parole. Um, so, I mean, you know, it's, that's, uh, that's kind of the anchoring swing judgments. And then you have court, sort of this, uh, speculation about like what, how, how might this affect self-driving cars, right? You, we talked about that example at the very top about when somebody cuts you off, uh, on the freeway and you are finding yourself seething, you know, um, <laughs> down the line. Did we talk about that, or is that that's in the actual article? I don't know if we talked about that in the blurb, but anyway, they talk, they mentioned that in the article. And so, what might that look like for a self-driving vehicle or a fully autonomous vehicle? Basically, if we think somebody's cutting us off, are we more likely to um, sort of, um, you know, be upset at that other person? Because them cutting you off was the anchor, but it in fact was not them. It was the self-driving technology. Um, so I, there's there's that kind of speculation as well. Um, I don't know. Those are those are fun applications. I think. <laughs> yeah, the self-driving car one, and even some of the like other implications for just automation or machine learning are interesting because it becomes like if there are anchors that are put in there or if there are actions that happen in the self-driving car instance that make you or trigger you to think that it's a like a rudeness when in fact maybe that was a life-saving maneuver for the person in the car um it it kind of gets at that whole problem of like putting self-driving cars into play in a in like a slow fashion where you're dealing with like manual and self-driving at the same time so you're trying to interpret interactions of what you assume is a human um but it's not. It's like automation making decisions based on programming. Uh, so I, I think that that leads itself to, I think, have probably human bias inside of the automation development, potentially. Uh, but then, too, you kind of have to, you know, assess the situation as like the, the human driver. And like, did my car just cut that other car off and understand like behavior behind you that you may not be in control of anymore? So I think it adds a lot of different things. <laughs> Yeah, wave at them and say, "Oh, I'm sorry." <laughs> it's, it's automated. It's not me. Like throw up your hands, both of them, and show you know it's it's not me. Um, I do want to talk about this in sort of the medical context again. Um, kind of these application areas of rudeness meets anchoring bias, and I want to talk about specifically like what might this look like if there's some sort of anchoring bias check in the software or programs that these medical professionals use that are creating the diagnosis um you know is there is there something that we can do uh or is there some sort of anti-bias or uh, anchoring bias check that you know kind of is used to complete these diagnosis negotiations or other similar work like what kind of checks are in place in the software to make sure that you're not being um that your diagnosis is to the best of your ability and 
uh, like how do you counter sort of that anchoring bias right that's a it's interesting question i don't have the answer to your any speculation from your end blake I think it's really hard, and it'd be, uh, that's so stupid to say. So I, I do have an example um, of why why this is kind of making my brain twist a little bit. I'm going to talk about it at a high level because I want to protect the person that it's related to. Um, but a very close friend of mine, he spent all of his career working in the medical world, um, in which he developed a lot of different types of technologies and worked on them. And he came to see that there was really good software implementations for specific um, specific things that you do in the medical world related to diagnosis. Uh, but what could often get in the way is doctor's prior experience and it not being in line with how the machine worked. And so there's this mismatch between I'm the human, the doctor that understands the the science behind all of this, and I've been doing this job for a long time, versus I've got a machine that's you know powered by machine learning and early AI and is proven to be a very good diagnostic tool, but you have this kind of combative nature between you know technology and human perce- perception. So I, I think a lot of this stuff does exist in some form or fashion. Um, in medical technology, it's trying to keep a human's uh, perspective in check that can be very, very tough uh, based on prior experience, how you anchor in situations or, you know, experiences you've had in the past that have colored your mental model of how things work. So I, I think software, it's it's kind of hard in the, in the medical world because I think there is a lot of really good software that exists out there. Um, but I know there's it's also very prone to use errors and things like that that are also related to you know bad design. Um, but I don't know, Nick, from your perspective, where do you see maybe checks for this kind of stuff? I don't know. That's an interesting question and something that you know smarter people than me are dedicating their life's research to. Um, yeah. If I were to speculate, I would imagine it, there's like some questions that don't necessarily reveal what they're checking for in the software. Um, like, I don't know, was it, you know, how rate the doctor's mood um, where, you know, it's not necessarily transparent what the software is asking that for, um, you know, and I think that could be built into a workflow throughout the day, you know, like how, where something just comes up randomly and it just, you know, maybe doctors have like a, a pager or something on them and they say, oh, my mood is happy face. My mood is sad face. My mood is angry face, you know, and there's just some way to correlate that to when they're diagnosing um, these patients uh, conditions and and whether or not um, maybe there's some correlation through machine learning or something like that that can predict exactly based on a doctor's mood or other you know periodic check-in questions although that's a lot to ask of a doctor i don't know i'm just you know well i think you bring up a really good point and you you know me i love an innovative measure and we've talked about on the show i think at least two times about various algorithms that are out there i think they're related to smartphone ai assistants that can kind of analyze your mood based off of your voice so using something like that to kind of have a passive pulse check on you throughout the day to see how your decision making is. And that that does get into a very weird place, doesn't it? Very quickly. Or maybe that's just where my mind goes. Is it's yeah. tracking your, your decision making across patients based off of uh, an analysis of something like your phone's 
uh, decision making about how you're feeling and that's that's your work performance and stuff like that so it, it gets into a very sci-fi place but i think there's a lot of merit to it yeah it could be cool to see uh like we talked about a couple weeks ago where um you know all this information about a person is being um used for medical diagnoses or um you know these these sorts of algorithms that go on behind the scenes you could also play those into uh, medical professionals who are actually diagnosing these things. Um, so, yeah, I um, it, it's interesting to think about how, you know, software can be used. I do want to get into this next question here uh, about whether or not we can use human factors, principles, to decrease rudeness in the workplace. Or is that, you know, in the domain of IO psych, um, and if we can use human factors, what does that look like? I mean, we kind of talked a little bit about it. Uh, anything else that comes to mind there, Blake? This is hard because I I think uh, I don't know how to approach this. So I'm going to try and do it as appropriately as I can. I guess do it. So I I value um, a lot of my colleagues who do not always present me things in the most. Um, unrude fashion possible uh, and I think it's led me to have a thicker skin to be able to produce and take cr- take types of critique in a much better way and make better products and separate myself from my work um, so I think removing some rudeness from the workplace there's some of that I wouldn't want want it to be removed because it's been invaluable to me and my growth um, and also some of my, I, I think some of my own behaviors can be perceived as rude because I'm very straight to the point. Um, so I, I really don't know if removing rudeness in the workplace, if that completely changes how people interact. Um, because I think there, I think I have a lot of positive relationships where there are people who know me very well and I know them very well, and we can be kind of tough with each other to get to where we need to go to like push a product forward or like brainstorm ideas without it being professionally or unprofessional, I guess is the way, way that I would put it. Um, I I'm sure there are benefits of it because of this whole narrowing narrowingness of mindset, um, and not be for people who cannot, uh, basically get themselves out of that or like take information and look at it in a different way. If somebody has been rude to them, uh, I do think there is value in figuring out how to put that into place, but I would imagine Nick, you've got some ideas for different tactics or principles that you think you could interject into the workplace to either reduce or change how rudeness impacts people. Oh man, just to talk with HR. I don't know. Like I feel like the, um, you know, Kristen makes a good point in chat here. Uh, non-formal meetings between people to discuss behavior could potentially, um, yeah. help right you know whether or not they're positive or negative and just say what works for people and those individual differences right what works for somebody may not work for somebody else um i i don't know there's like i said there are people that are smarter than me that are devoting their life's work to this i think we kind of talked a little bit about you know intervention methods that may track additional metrics that might help with um with things like the diagnosis and the accuracy of that. But I feel like there's also um, things that you could do to be uh, or to, to intervene, to be less rude in the workplace too. Right. Like there's um, there's certainly like meditation methods that doctors can employ um, or there's like standards that uh, institutions can 
make mandatory across their staff to where if anybody says something derogatory, then um, you know they're they're out. You know, I mean, there's a staffing crisis right now, but like, um, you know that. The, there's that type of thing, and the, the staffing crisis is a whole separate. Th- anyway, uh, there's there's ways about it. I think, I think it's, factors can help. I think it's a really great point. I I do to be completely blunt. I do think there is a difference between um, occupational rudeness that has some kind of benefit because it's part of your personality and the bluntness in in how you do things. But there's also like don't be a dick. And yeah. There. So there's a lot of that. There's some definite gray area. I love the idea about the meditation thing because call back to last week's episode. I I did attend a talk with one of the product designers for my Headspace. Headspace, not Mindspace. Headspace, and it sounded like that has a tremendous impact in some of their work environment stuff. Like their all hand starts off with meditation. Um, oh, interesting. Which, yeah, so there, there's a lot of interesting kind of applications of things like that that you can bring into the workplace. Also, ooh, excuse me, I'm a big fan of exercise. So if you can find ways to interject that in the beginning or in the middle or whatever part of your day, sometimes that can change your complete complete brain chemistry and just turn a day around completely. So maybe that's another way to approach it. Yeah, very interesting article this week. Blake, any other closing thoughts on this one? I just really liked it. It was tough. Because there's a lot going on here, and the I, but I haven't revisited kind of this anchoring T and K stuff in a long, long time. I do like that this is being done from the business school perspective, um, and that they're thinking outside of just like the nego- negotiating table in terms of where this can be impactful. I agree. All right. Well, thank you to our patrons this week for selecting our topic. And thank you to our friends over at the University of Maryland for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post links to the original articles in our Slack and our Discord as we find them, as well as our weekly news roundups. So join us over there for more discussion. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, patron. Huge thank you as always to our patrons and especially our honorary Human Factors cast staff patrons, uh, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you keep the show running. Keep our lights on over here. And uh, thank you so much for all of your continued support. If you want to support the show, uh, we do have some, you know, things that you can do. Like like the commercial said, we do have a show sponsor position. And we were talking about this in the pre-show. This would be tremendously helpful for us to go to conferences for additional coverage. So, if you're thinking about, uh, you know, advertising to human factors professionals, reach out to us. We can uh, get you in line there. Um, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to toot it too much. So anyway, we're gonna we're gonna get into this next part of the show. It came from. It came from. I don't want to toot it too much. <laughs> 
<laughs> Somebody clip that, please. God. Uh, it's like I've not been doing this for a week. Anyway, uh, let's switch gears and get to It Came From. This week, we actually uh, got two really great questions from our community. Uh, one from our YouTube community and one from our Discord. Um, and uh, this is the part of the show where we search all over everything to bring you uh, community topics. So uh, fortunately, you know, we did get, uh, like I said, from our YouTube and Discord. So we'll go ahead and get into it here. Uh, this first one is from YouTube. Uh, this one's from Derica. And uh, they write, hello, I just found your channel and I really enjoy your content. Well, thank you for the kind words. Really appreciate that. A video that I would like to request would be about what a student should be doing within their last semester to better prepare themselves for the human factors field. Thank you. Blake, what should a student be doing in their last semester to help prepare themselves for the human factors field? Woof. That's a good question. Uh, definitely not things that I was doing. So one thing that I think is really important in your last semester is and this this sounds cliche, but I, I swear it's it's the truth. Is to really start thinking about what your next step is. So if you if you are planning to go to grad school, if you're planning to try and look for that first job or whatever it's going to be, like really start putting that plan together for what those next steps are. Because that usually, if like if you're going to grad school, that means you know filling out applications, taking tests, getting with your professors to get those awesome letters of recommendation, all that kind of stuff, and then finding a job can be even tougher. Um, I think one really important aspect of that last semester is to make sure that you're you're getting the proper experience you want so that you can move forward. So finding an internship is a really invaluable thing to try and do. Um, or and that can even be, you know, working in a new lab or taking on a new research project in a lab. There you go. Human Factors Cast has one. Um, so that's a really, really great place to spend your time. Uh, and lastly, I would I would have told myself to do this, but I honestly didn't know anything about human factors until the week that I started the program. Um, but one thing I didn't do early on, because I think in college it's easy to get lost in, you know, not thinking too much about the professional world, just going to school, that kind of stuff. But networking and building a network of friends or colleagues or whatever you want to call them can really help. Because you never know, like down the line, when somebody's you know working at a place you'd like to work at, and you want to know what it's like to work there, what it takes to get an interview, how invaluable that can be, or if you end up doing a podcast or whatever the next podcast is, you can call on friends to kind of pick their brain about topics like machine learning or deep learning, that kind of stuff. So it, it's definitely important to network, kind of put a plan together for what you want your next steps to be, and spend some time doing a little, doing some kind of work, whether it's an internship, a research project, or joining a lab. But Nick, what would you have done or what would you like to do um, if, if this was your last semester of school? Yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, I uh, so I want to approach this from two different perspectives. One, there's um, the are you continuing your education? It's a little ambiguous here. Um, last semester is it last semester of undergrad? Last semester of grad school? I think there's very different steps that you take. Um, yeah. Some overlap, but uh, I, I want to talk about it from two perspectives. So one, if this is your last semester of undergrad. Um, it may be too late to get into grad school for the following year, but you take a year off. You get that experience. You get stuff to kind of buff your resume um, or your CV, and you apply to schools. You take all the tests required to get into said schools. Um, you research professors. You know, I think there's a lot of steps um, that are included in that that are maybe you don't think about right off the bat. Like, 
I had a whole spreadsheet of different logins for different institutions with different professors and different contact information for admissions and the professors themselves. And, you know, there's there's a whole nerdy thing about it that it's like what's required, you know, a whole column for requirements. Has it been submitted yet? Has it? It you may were have really gotten, on it. That's amazing. It, I mean, it may have gotten easier since I went to grad school, but that's kind of what I did is is kind of keep track of everything that needed to be done uh, from start to finish. And I think that's a good first step is to categorize or to uh, catalog what it is you need to do and take a step back and kind of go, OK, well, where can I fill in the gaps? Um, do I have extracurricular activities that I can talk about or write about do i have this test done do i have that test done have i applied to this institution when are the due dates how do i prioritize those due dates there's a lot of things that you can do from that perspective now i want to move over to the i am done with school be it undergrad or grad school doesn't matter i think uh blake you brought up a lot of really great points here and i want to reiterate a couple so you brought up the point that you are looking for an internship uh or some sort of experience that will help you find a position later, right? I don't think internship is always the right word for it because you can still get positions in labs at school that uh, can help you with research or, uh, you know, that, that help kind of solidify your role as like a lab manager or something like that. So with that, um, you know, I, I would take a step back and almost look at the gaps that you need to fill in order to get to the place that you want to be. If you need to, if, let's say you want to be in a specific domain and you have no research in that domain. Well, I mean, there's, you know, like what if it's the only school that you got accepted to, there's that problem. You know, so try to fill in those gaps where you can. Uh, it doesn't always have to be an internship. It could be a lab on campus or virtually, like I said earlier, we're still looking for a couple of people, so feel free to reach out. Um, the uh, the other thing is the connection side of things and the going to conferences. And I think uh, there are there are some conferences that are better than others. And I always like to mention HFES. It's a great conference for this for students especially because you get the opportunity to sit down at a career fair. And since pandemic's over, right? Uh, I say that sarcastically, but because we're starting to get back to normal life, um, the uh, the ability to sit down in front of somebody, uh, to interact with them, and to run into them again during the conference is going to be huge. Um, you know, they're, especially if you're there presenting work that you've done in a lab, that is a, a huge benefit to people who are looking for a job because you can get in front of these big tech companies. You can get experience interviewing. And even if you fumble one, you can just roll right into the next one and be like, OK, what did I do wrong there? I can just, you know, improve upon it instantly. You get that feedback instantly um, and you get that experience interviewing. And I think that's really valuable, too. So there's um, there's some stuff you can do before you, <laughs> you go into uh, the workforce. Uh, yeah, it's mostly about filling gaps, making connections, and applying for what you want to do. Uh, and I, I would be lying if I said it was easy all the time. Um, you know, there are some people I know who have been looking for jobs for, like, months, and I don't want to discourage anybody. It's hard. Um, but, you know, just bring your best self and apply where you can, and I don't know, it's rough. I don't, I, I don't, 
I don't want to say it's it's so easy a caveman could do it because it's not. And no, it's, it's definitely just, not. It's it's one of those things where it's like just got to keep pushing uh, until well, even you know, for us, it's like even when we had a job, let's <laughs> keep pushing. Yeah. So it never stops. It never stops um, unless you get comfortable and you get a company that really likes you and you're good there forever. I don't know. Like if you're fine with static growth. Anyway, that's we're getting uh, we're getting outside the t- uh, bounds of the topic. So thank you for that question, Derek. I really appreciate it. Let's get into this other one here. This one's from our discord uh, from Joy Ahoy. This is um, let's see here. Uh, I have a really general question. Right now, I'm in school for engineering, but most of my internships have entirely been in UX, and it seems like 99% of human factors jobs are in UX. What does the human factors field look like outside of digital, web, and mobile UX? Um, As someone from Canada, are there any opportunities for engineering human factors jobs outside of defense and aerospace, and what do those look like? Uh, Blake, what do you think? So there... There is. I really love this thread. So shout out to the Discord for just being an awesome place for human factors people. But the big, the big thing that I see, at least in the states, in terms of who's hiring human factors people and where human factors engineering specifically has a lot of potential for pull is the medical field. It is a place that is like really doing an overhaul and is doing some serious hiring of HF professionals, UX professionals the whole gamut to change how products are made, change existing medical record technology, just tackle really kind of legacy problems that have always been there. And I think you would find in the medical field that HF, like being an HF practitioner is highly valued since there's requirements by the FDA, at least in the States. I'm assuming there's probably something similar in Canada that requires you to actually go through a very formalized process for medical device testing. Um, in which a human factors person has to be involved. So there's a lot of opportunity there for sure. I do want to highlight one of our, I'm not going to call them out by name because uh, I don't have their permission to, but I do want to highlight a comment that's made in our Discord Slack about this. And really it's it's what do you enjoy doing and what drove you to do human factors or get into engineering in the first place? Because I, I would bet that there is probably some kind of technology, be it like a software solution or a physical product that exists in that space that you could try to get your foot in the door somewhere. Um I'm sure there's a lot more there's a there's plenty of more context of where you know human factors engineering is important um, but in terms of being outside of just purely software or like mobile design I do think the medical field is a, a place where you can get experience in both yeah I um I answered this one in the discord uh, just to make sure because this was a- asked a couple weeks ago here and we had a break last week but I, I do want to kind of restate what Mike answer was um but basically yes i think defense aerospace medical those are the big three and so you know you're on the right track they're on the right track and thinking that that's kind of the human factors sector um but i think there's more to it than that and it's like finding a domain that's interesting to you that's the other discord member that you won't say their name but they're they're quite active in there and we love them so uh (laughs) Uh, I will say, you know, it, it's 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 um, weird to say a blanket statement like human factors can be applied everywhere. But I think that's true. And it's just a matter of finding that niche of where you can apply it uh, and whether or not you have the right experience for it. Right. I listed off a bunch of kind of niche um, domain areas uh, that 
you know, aren't typically associated with human factors work. Um, you know, and I know folks that are in other industries like film and theme parks who, you know, you, you might not typically think of that as human factors, but they certainly have applications in those areas. And, um, you know, I, uh, I definitely listed off a couple industries here. Um, I'm looking for it. Hang on. I got to pull it up because I didn't pull it into this. Uh, let's see here. So I, uh, I mentioned that there are a couple different industries in which you could look at. And they were um, zoo or theme parks, uh, public space layouts, teledildonics. If you don't know what that is, uh, go go Google it. Uh, human factors of training materials, so like written or digital tools or videos. Um, so uh, maybe pick any way to display information. You can do a deep dive on it. So like color, font, loading screens. This is like research threads, right? Um, there's like self-care medical devices and that's kind of the medical field right band-aids or uh, any other device that you use on yourself there's a lot of human factors research that goes into that uh, medical device design children's products are another huge uh, thing that could use human factors because children uh, interact with the world differently than we do and so there's special considerations that need to be taken into um, into the products design for that specific uh, for specific age groups even you know it breaks down you know, zero to three months is going to have something different than 18 to 24 months. So that's another interesting uh, aspect. So I think there's um, a variety of different industries in which human factors can be applied to that may not necessarily, uh, you might not necessarily think of human factors first, but I think defense, aerospace, medical are the big three where there's like government standards that need to be applied. Um just yeah. two more real quick that I think are growing <laughs> yeah. very fast. And I, so you see a lot of, a lot of positions that are like UX or like researcher, but I think a lot of times there's a couple of emerging industries that like, they're definitely looking for somebody with like human fact, like true human factors experience. Um, and that's in uh, automation technology and cars uh, and also just wearable technology in general. Under, so understanding a lot more of context of use and the impact of context of use uh, for things like it, everything from like a Fitbit um, to like like we talked about medical like glucose monitors and stuff that you wear all the time. Uh, so there's a lot of p impact that you can have in those two fields. And they're, they're kind of on the edge of, you know, it's growing technology. So it's not something as established as like medical or defense or anything like that. Um, but I from my perspective and it all depends on this person's perspective that's kind of a fun place to be because you could be early in your career you know defining what a space looks like yes agree uh all right let's get into this next part of the show it's called one more thing it really needs no introduction because it's just one more thing that blake and i get to talk about blake what's your one more thing this week Oh man! So today is my first return to playing video games, and I've got to say I've really enjoyed uh, playing Dark Alliance. It's like D, it's a D and D, or it's a game that's based off of a D and D kind of like storytelling, and it's just a silly hack and slash game, and it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, what's what's yeah. the game? It's hack and slash. It's it's deep story. Uh. It's not as deep as I expected. It's kind of like it feels a lot like Diablo three if you've ever played any oh, of those okay. games. So you you take on some specific role and then you're just like you're fighting monsters and bosses and stuff. It's just a lot of fun. Any cool human factors UX stuff going on with it? 
Uh, there is a lot of kind of end user experience problems up front that you have to kind of get past and be willing to download patch after patch. It's had a lot of uh, like login credentials issues, which have been really interesting. Uh, but luckily, if you're, it's it, this is why I don't play games on the first day anymore because it just like it sucks. It's not a fun experience. Like usually, it's it's not ready to go. Software development for games is too fast. Um, so it, it's kind of one of those things that's been nice to read about some of the problems um, and like the um, the massive amount of, you know, server farm crashes and stuff like that because of the D&D name that atta- that's attached yeah. to the game. There's a whole subreddit devoted to patient gamers, which it, it's like there's so many benefits to waiting, right? Oh, the yeah. only drawback is that you're not part of the conversation, right? So if anyone's talking about it, you, you might have to you know step out but you do get like all the patches all the dlc you know when it's fully out it's usually on sale for less than what it was when it came out and you can usually grab them on great deals so uh yes waiting is is better if you can uh if you can do it otherwise i know you know and i don't want to like harp on anybody who jumps on the games right away because being part of that conversation and keeping up with you know your favorite streamers who are playing with it and that type of thing is is uh you know that's part of it and so I don't blame anybody for doing that. It's just that, you know, there's there's a lot of benefits to waiting too. Um, so my one more thing this week is a uh, is is I bought this a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago. It's my Fitbit, and uh, the, it's the Fitbit Sense, and it took me like two or three weeks before I realized that the button on the side of this thing is not a real button. Um, let me show it to you. Uh, so for those on the video, you can actually see it looks like a button. It's actually just a recessed indent instead of uh, an outward button. Um, nope. But it gives you that tactile sense that you're pressing something because of the way it's indented. Uh, and it it was just it was a uh, it was interesting to me to they make it feel like a button, um, but you're really just pushing in on the side, and you know the plastic is bending on the side to press a button on the inside and it's a way i'm sure to keep you know water out or whatever yeah that's Um, a good move but i i just found it really interesting and you know the the care that went into making an indent that feels like something that was outwardly you know being pressed uh really surprised me and like i said it took me a couple weeks to even figure that out oh Um, man it took me like a year to not to understand that the the quote-unquote button on my iphone is the same thing it's not a button it's just <laughs> tactical feedback you're getting. Um, first time it died, I was like, "Oh man, I broke the button." Oh wait, it's not a button. It's that's pretty cool. And it, again, funny. it's like a it's smart design because it's doing it for you know some other purpose. Um, you know, functional breakdown doesn't happen as fast on non mechanical parts. So stuff like that is just interesting to me. Yeah. Well, that's going to be it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the news story this week. You can hang out with us on our Slack or Discord, get to us on any of our social channels. You can visit our official website and sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you want to support the show, uh, if you like what you hear, you want to support the show uh, or, you know, any of that stuff, I guess. you can. There's a couple ways you can do that. One, leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening to this thing, uh, if it allows it. If not, you can tell your friends about us. That helps us grow the show. Uh, quite a bit um and if you're able to consider supporting us on patreon that actually really does help keep the lights on over here um you know and help us go to things like conferences and do all the coverage there uh so you know think about that 
that's that's what I'll leave you with. And as always, uh, links to all of our socials, our websites, in the description of this episode. Mr. Blake Arnsdorf, thank you for being on the show tonight. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about uh, rudeness? If you want to talk about <laughs> rudeness in, <laughs> you, you can always boy. talk about rudeness in the uh, in the Discord Slack with me. I'm at Blake in there. And then you can reach out and say rude things to me on any social media channel through at Don't Panic UX. He's such a rude boy. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me streaming on Twitch every Tuesday at 1 Pacific uh, for office hours and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.